So this is the Theology Matters podcast. This is a special series on CTI member books, and I'm here with a CTI member, Mary Ellen O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, Mary Ellen. Oh, it's great to be here, Josh, and, and great to be talking with a CTI um, audience. Absolutely. You're, you're, I should say, you're the Robert and Marion Short Professor of Law and Research Professor of International Dispute Re- Resolution at the Kroc Institute at the University of Notre Dame. Yes, I, I actually have a joint position. So I'm um, the Robert and Marion Short Professor at the law school. And then I also hold a position titled Research Professor of International Dispute Resolution at our Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies. Absolutely. And we'll get in a bit to, um, well, we're going to talk about a book that you recently have published, The Art of Law in the International Community, published by Cambridge University Press. In a moment, we'll speak about how you were at CTI. Uh, we can't believe it's already been like seven years, seven years ago, six years ago. And uh, when you were initially working, doing the initial research on this book, we'll talk about that in a moment. But before that, talk to me about uh, what led you to write this book, The Art of Law in the International Community. Josh, I've been involved with international law, it feels like my whole life. Certainly as a very young child, I was aware of um, the larger world because of my own membership in the Roman Catholic Church. So I grew up with an international orientation toward Rome and toward the worldwide universal church. And also from a young age, we were praying for peace. And, and when, in my childhood, for peace in Vietnam. So those were the two um, most important influences of my life. They led me to a career teaching and researching and even practicing international law. And as I had the privilege of an academic position with security and even an endowed chair, I felt even more determined to promote this law which can actually prevent the, the worst violence we humans in, inflict on each other, and that's the violence that comes from major armed conflict. So that is my personal lifelong and intellectual motivations. The reason I took the turn to aesthetic philosophy and tried to do something really new with this book is because by the time I arrived at CTI in uh, 2014, it was clear that law was not being valued. It was not being accepted. The law first of the international community, but increasingly, and and we've just seen more and more examples of it in, in recent weeks, lack of respect for law at home. So how could we begin to think about law in a new way and come to respect it and what law can do for all of our communities. One of the things that I had brought with me as an unformed idea to CTI and that really was the great benefit to me and to this book of being at CTI is the dialogue that had been going on for some time prior to our uh, inquiry about the role lost religious belief, lost faith, the decline of the theology and public life, what impact was that having on all kinds of intellectual um, endeavors and, and, and in social organization? We talked a lot about the decline of theology and theological answers 
at CTI, our focus was on religious liberty. So the law protecting the human right to freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. And we very quickly started discussing the fact that law was once so tightly tied in with our theological notions, certainly in the West, in, in other cultures, that's still the case, the Islamic culture, for example. But, but we also talked about a culture like China, where law had been quite clearly separated from theology and from religion, which was suppressed. That linkage confirmed for me that we had to find a new secular normative source for inspiring our fundamental legal ideas. I came across a definition which I wish I had used in the book. I, th I think it sums up really though what I tried to do without so much precision. It's a definition of law and it comes from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. In the entry on the nature of law, the authors say that law is the concrete expression of transcendent norms. I so wholeheartedly confirm that that is the case. What we talked about at CTI and what I tried to address in the book is the loss of the source of transcendence. Where do we get the idea of what is a transcendent norm? How do we discern that in a secular world with no time or opening to anything that focuses on the transcendence, such as theology? So it was to fill that gap to revive law, to revitalize it for its most important work, suppressing the most serious forms of violence. And I don't know, you can tell me, did I make any progress with the art of law? Absolutely. No, I, I, I can, I, I even remember some of the sentences that you already had going, but of course, you know, you were working in short papers at that time. And by right. at this point, you've turned it into a 300 page, a 300 page book. I wanted to point out one quick, very interesting thing, and you don't even have to comment on this uh, unless you want to. This actually came out, this book came out in just about two years ago, a year and a half ago, but right before the pandemic, as I recall. And what I find amazing about that is on page 31, you actually say, you predict in a way that at the international level, we don't necessarily have incentives to fight disease and to create sort of structures to help fight international sort of communicable diseases, among other problems, you're talking about warfare, uh, climate change, and so on. I find that found that amazing that you, in a sense, pointed to that before it even happened. Yeah, a, a year before, and, and we were going to have in-depth discussions about the book with, um, you know, at a CTI event in Florence that was going to be co-hosted with our wonderful colleague, Gabor. Gabor Alma, yeah. Yeah. And it, that had to be canceled because of COVID. Yeah. It, ironic, because I think the book really had a blueprint of how we could have avoided the pandemic, how if we had put resources into health, human rights, the environment, instead of into war, we could have prevented the, 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 the outbreak. And certainly we could have uh, responded in a much more coordinated and humane fashion than we did. But we have continued down this path as an international community of division and of violence and of preferring to try to solve problems by projecting military force and military power rather than projecting um, what is popularly known as soft forms of power, law, the rule of law, the answers in law, the answers from our, our traditions of, of faith and philosophy. And the book, 
I didn't expect to have a, an immediate huge impact. My uh, earlier books seemed to have a slower, more gradual because they this idea that I'm putting forward to replace theological sources of transcendence or to accompany them, because I don't say replace, but to support those with a secular um, source that leads to the same answers. This is very provocative. This is not what we teach in law schools. This is really shaking the jurisprudential world. Uh, and the, those kinds of radical ideas are usually dismissed at first. And then if they've got some real uh, value to them, they sink in slowly, in part because this book came out when the pandemic was just beginning and was just becoming um, available widely as the pandemic was spreading wild, wildly, widely. The ideas seem to be getting uh, faster adoption than I would have expected. Absolutely. We can come back in a moment to, you know, some of the speak more particularly about why it is that international law is kind of uh, the compliance with it has decreased. I mean, you've kind of said that already that right. you talk about this in the book that you know, in previous centuries, religion theology provided a kind of ground for why you should comply with law that was broader than just self-interest. But as societies in the West secularized, that ground sort of fell away. All these other legal philosophies tried to replace it and various forms of other sort of international relations theories, such as yeah, realism, and, tried to... Yeah, and the main one, economics. E realism and then economics, which is a form of realism, mm -hmm. are, are the replacements. So money and might, military right. power, physical force, and money. That's what we're left with when we take away the transcendent sources. Absolutely. And so you're trying to, to sort of provide a new ground, not necessarily, you know, some people might say, well, let's just try to revitalize theology or religion, you know, and you're not opposed to that, but you're not so certain that that will, that that will work on its own. So you want to provide this more secular basis, which is looking to aesthetics and to beauty. And maybe we can speak more about that, but I also wanted to get you to speak about Hirsch Lauterpacht, who is a, a philosopher of law, who you, you speak of quite a bit, especially at the beginning of the book, and who you see as a kind of guide. This book started as the Lauterpacht Lectures um, in Cambridge in, in uh, 2014, February 2014, and I um, really looked to Hirsch Lauterpacht as he's he's my uh, he's the most inspirational international law scholar of the 20th century. I think that that's widely held to be the case. He was uh, a Jew from Eastern Europe who. Um, left before the worst events of the 1930s for the United Kingdom, where he had a very successful career um, as an international lawyer and rose to be the Hewell Professor of International Law in Cambridge. Lauderpact was probably the last of the really great international lawyers with a universal global reputation who tried to explain the importance of natural law. Lauderpact understood that law does depend on these transcendent ideas, and he could see in natural law theory, which definitely came out of a theological approach, whether uh, in, in, in a variety of theologies give rise to this um, method or theory called natural law. It doesn't have to be Christian. There's a, a, a wonderful Islamic approach and, and there's also 
an approach known as Jewish national natural law. And they all, all these theologies have something in common with regard to natural law. So Louder Pact could see this combination of theological bases really creating a secular notion of natural law that he found to be essential for international law. And after the Second World War, he really called on international law scholars not to lose the, the understanding of natural law and its role in all of law, but especially international law, which doesn't have the usual government institutions to keep it ticking over and relies much more on theory. So he made this plea in a beautiful article called The Groschen Moment, written after the Second World War, um, he said, we can't go forward with just a material sense of what the law is. That was forgotten. So going back and looking at Lauterpacht and realizing you know, this, this is absolutely the correct position, natural law has to be understood and has to be part of it. But while he could think about natural law as having a secular basis because it had been taught and thought about in a secular fashion by a combination of religious and non-religious people. I think the end of natural law, the suppression of it because of its theological origins was so um, significant after Louder Pact that we had to look for a new common secular source of transcendence, but one that did not fight with or contradict the original religious and theological bases. And it, 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 this is not from Lauterpacht. He didn't, he only extolled the importance of natural law. It was really thinking about from theologians, from my wonderful colleague at Notre Dame, Cyril O'Regan from Gordon Graham, uh, who was then at the, at, at the seminary at the, um, uh, yeah, the, seminary, yeah. Right, he was he was there at that time, mm -hmm. and our our colleagues in our group really helped me to see what theologians were doing to rekindle the sense of transcendence in so many faiths, and pointed out how um, the secular philosophy of aesthetics, the study of beauty is wholly compatible with these core religious notions. Um, so I dove in and it's uh, Aquinas brought aesthetic notions to his own theological views. He understood those from Plato, of course, but also Aristotle. And it was a joy to begin to follow the path of aesthetics and how that had done so much for philosophy, for philosophy of, of society. It, um, after Aquinas, it enters into the work of Immanuel Kant. Somewhere along this history, it had always been not just part of theology and secular philosophy, but law as well. And the mystery is that in fact, it was Protestant iconoclasm and the preference for pure reason over immaterial sources that uh, leads to a loss of these ideas in law. The Western law that we have in the United States today is really inherited from Western Europe and from a very logical, 
Protestant influenced orientation, but it wasn't a it wasn't a serious problem to recapture that idea and uh, infuse the book with at least the the part of natural law that we need to recapture, talking about the fact that you can contemplate the beautiful, as Immanuel Kant explains, and and understand how knowledge that we have. The, our understanding of the good, what gives pleasure, the sense of proportion in life, the sense of uh, clarity, the sense of fairness and the outreach to the other, that we are not all that is, that our internal self-reference may lead us to pursue wealth and, and material power, but it doesn't lead us to want to have something in common or to see the other and see this relationship with other people as a beautiful and pleasurable thing that we should all aspire to support. That third leg, as I talk about it in the book, yes, we're always going to have people seeking power and the law has to account for that and can incorporate it. We're always going to have people seeking wealth, same thing, but law will never be successful unless we allow for the fact that human beings, and if we nurture the fact that human beings can live altruistically in the sense of beauty, in proportion with the other, and in, in, in understanding and in, in being what, what the contemplation of beauty does is it takes you completely out of yourself to this non-material world of transcendent pleasure and happiness. We can do that. And once we start educating ourselves in that again, we make space in the law for when we need to sacrifice our own sense of power, our own self-interest in wealth for the other. We can have a law that is fair and, and permits a country to pursue its foreign policy without the United States thinking it can use military force against you. An equal rule that we all refrain from something that the realists tell us is in the U.S.'s self-interest to attack, maybe out of a pure sense of altruism, but aesthetic philosophy tells us we can do that. We can make that short-term sacrifice and enjoy the flourishing, the equality, the proportion, the beauty that we bring into the world when we suppress these other areas of motivation for the one that puts us all on the sense of equal, uh, equal basis. I'm sorry, that was very abstract. I tried at the end to make it more concrete. Um, I can tell people who are listening, if they find that either, I hope intriguing, but maybe also confusing, I really recommend reading the book. Absolutely. No, the book is, you provide a lot of examples. I mean, one of the things I wanted to touch uh, sort of on there is, th you know, there are a lot of laws in international law. I mean, there's a lot of different areas of, of concern. It seems for you, the law of warfare is very central. Yes, very important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mentioned how I became interested in the subject of law against war from really my earliest childhood. In my considered view, my position is that you don't really have law at all. The first purpose of law is to offer an alternative in the settlement of disputes, in the guidance of our common behavior in, in, in life and society, if you don't have rules against violence. So all law has begins with the idea that there is an alternative to using violence to 
resolve a dispute you might have with another person to get your house built, to get your plans fulfilled. If you think about that rule as being the starting place for international law, how much more important is it that countries don't believe they have the free right to use military force? And despite the fact that that makes perfect common sense, ethical sense, that is the very rule that has been under attack since the 1960s and the rise of of realist political philosophy that that states actually this has been a reverse analysis president of presidents of the united states have a duty to amass military force and to project power to get what the united states wants that is the odd ethical lesson that um began to dominate in the 1960s. So in addition to trying to find a a secular but compatible basis for legal theory, for why we care about law, for what law should be doing, I very much want to counter this ideology that it is somehow right or ethical to pursue military power regardless of the law and the use of force. And I'm hoping when that idea is taking its place in place of realism, we'll begin to see the continuing decline of of major armed conflict. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could speak a bit about what is this realist position? I mean, I take it to be one of your points is you want people and even nations to think in a way more altruistically, not to think only of their own interests and to you know go around the world trying to pursue national interest uh, over above everything else. But maybe there's a, another way to look at it too, but let's go ahead and answer that first and then I'll come back to my, my question. Well, realism is an invented view of the world invented in the 1930s and first in the UK and then after the Second World War when the United States had such an extraordinary military force developed during the war. It spoke very clearly to certain interests in the military industrial complex that, of course, President Eisenhower warned us against, this idea that um, the United States didn't really have to obey the rules, it could be above the rules, this idea of American exceptionalism, which has been sadly part of the US psyche for since the founding. But when it gets combined with this idea of realism, that the rules don't bind the US, certainly not the rules on the use of force, that when you have that much military power, you don't have to pay attention to the rules. That particular narrow view of politics has dominated American universities and really filtered into foreign policy. So, so we have kind of a sense a two-pronged attack on international law. We have the loss of its foundations, its connections, and its explanations tied to theology. And then we have this militarist realism growing up and, and really dominating foreign policy. So when a president would look and say, well, I guess I shouldn't ignore international law and refrain from going invading Iraq 2003, when political advisors try to say, you know, they can say to the president, what international law? There's just this consent-based thing. It doesn't have any higher authority. It, it does, it's no longer the command of, of God. It um, doesn't have the divine command anymore, or any equivalent to it. So we can do as a country whatever our military power allows us to do. We can um, promote might over right. 
And that has been the story. It happened gradually, but by 2003, certainly invasion of Iraq, any real sense of restraint through international law on US presidents, British prime ministers, Australian prime ministers, not to mention Russian, Chinese, has really become non-existent. Fast forward to 2021, 18 years later, and we're really reaping the whirlwind from this realist dismissal of international law, uh, you know, admitting that international law is in a weakened theoretical position, easy to kick over. But look what's happened. Not only has the United States been involved nonstop in armed conflicts for over two decades with so little to show, military force has not done what the realists promise, but we've invested so much and distracted ourselves so thoroughly. We're back to the pandemic point. We're looking at rampant climate change disasters, global health, impoverishment, just tragic poverty globally. And of course, these things are all connected and really a challenge to our times to number one, reject realism. Number two, return to international law. Number three, put it into practice so that we can resolve these, these extraordinary problems. But when in resolving the problems, I still maintain that the very first problem we have to contend with is the sense that it's perfectly free for sovereign states to use military force to go to war. Isn't part of the reason that, they, that people think that has to do with cooperation? That's the word that comes to mind. If, if I think the other will not adhere to the law, why would I? Right. Oh, that's a wonderful question, Josh, because that brings us back to what I think is the problem I want to deal with more in the next book that I just mm -hmm. hint at in the art of law. And that's this, this altruism. Mm -hmm. Yes, sometimes you have to take a risk. You have to say, Right, I might get hurt out of this. I might not win the competition if I step back and don't attack. If I uh, follow the rule, even if, I, even if the realist is telling me attack now, that sense of taking the risk for the other, giving the other the benefit of the doubt, or just giving, will, being willing to pay the potential price. Now, I think that the, it's exaggerated what price we would pay because the, the benefits generally of law compliance and of, of resolving these major really existential issues we've been talking about is low. But let's take it in the moment where the realists keep our minds. And they say, you'll become a sitting duck. It's too big a risk. Don't do it. Use your military force. Even if you're wrong, you know, it's, it's better to have hit them first before they hit you. And in fact, Aesthetics, religious faith, teaches just the opposite. You commit to principle, even at the cost, the sacrifice to self. I mean, that is the essential Christian message, isn't it? That Christ, who did nothing wrong, was willing to lay down his life for others so that they could have life. And that pure love that of the other, that pure altruism, loving without any sense of getting something in return is the topic of my next book, because I think it's essential that I build that out. I hint at it, that aesthetic philosophy tells us we are capable of this altruism, but I need to, I want to make the argument that altruism is really an essential quality and essential value in law, along with two other values that I will discuss in the book as well. 
So it will pick up the message of altruism from the art of law, but then also expand the principle of equality. Altruism allows us to have this principle in law to really view the other as your equal and not as your inferior. But that principle is also poorly understood as for its essential nature. You know, the very definition of justice is treating like cases alike, treating the other equally. So that needs to be revived. And then through both of these, they, you know, of course they're discursive, they're, they're interrelated. We need to rebuild a sense of trust in the law, that we can trust our legal principles, that we build up trust in society, that we build up a community sense of trust of each other and our willingness to live in peace under the rule of law. There's all kinds of trust concepts in the law. A fiduciary can hold property and trust. There's nothing in it for him. He does it completely for the other. He could have all that property. He's got control of it, but he only watches it grow and develop for the other. That is a, a legal trust. That concept I find so incredibly beautiful. I love the idea that so much of our artistic creation is built through this sense, this common sense of ownership and creativity that we influence each other's creative impulses to create art, that no art is the result of one artist's work. It's mm -hmm. always flowing from a cultural context in which the artist comes in which we're all involved. So I'll bring it back to art and faith in the end of the book, but I want to really show how some of these concepts have been so suppressed and reviving them will be part of a revitalized and, and, and really um, uh, vibrant legal community in which once again, the, the, the beautiful order of things, peace is our first principle, resort to military force, rarely if ever. Well, we are looking forward to that book as well, Mary, Mary Ellen O'Connell. We've got uh, The Art of Law in the International Community already in print, and you've got another one in the pipeline. Can I just mention also <laughs> that um, the paperback version of oh. uh, The Art of Law is now out. It came out in uh, late 2020. It really should have a 2021 uh, date on it, but um, that's so it's been fun talking with you, Josh, because the book is new again in Absolutely. paperback. Absolutely. I'm very glad to know that. I will share that with people as well, that they should now get on it and get the paperback uh, edition. Do you yet have a title for your new book? Probably not yet. The working title is Art, Equality, and Trust in International Law. And thank you so much for being on the podcast, Mary Ellen. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Josh. I, I'm sorry. You're going to have a lot of editing to do to get it. No, into. not at all. Yo, just cut out all those long speeches of mine. <laughs> no, absolutely. Good, no. good seeing you. Good to see Take you. Take care. Say hi to everyone. <laughs>